0: Welcome to the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine's Research Learning Series podcast, which focuses on helping you become a star research scholar. I'm Mary Haas, a Medical Education Fellow at the University of Michigan and part of the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine team. Meet my husband and fellow ER doc, Nate Haas.
1: And I'm Nate. I'm also an emergency physician at the University of Michigan, where my research interests include the ED-ICU interface and topics like DKA and cardiac arrest.
0: I'm bringing the education background,
1: and I'm bringing the research background.
0: So today we are super pumped to have Dr. James Paxton on the Research Learning Series. He's a prolific researcher and assistant professor in emergency medicine and chairman of the IRB at the Wayne State School of Medicine. He's going to give us the scoop today on common IRB pitfalls. James, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Thank you. I'm an assistant professor at Wayne State University School of Medicine. Also happen to be involved with the Institutional Review Board at Wayne State University as chairman of the MP2 committee and director of clinical research for Detroit Receiving Hospital here at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan.
1: Great. Thanks so much for being with us. We wanted to start with sort of a big picture question to help frame the rest of our conversation. So what is the goal of the IRB and what perspective is the IRB coming from when they review submissions? That's a very good question.
2: It's probably one of the more misunderstood parts of performing scientific investigation, because I think a lot of people don't understand the significance of the IRB. By definition, the Institutional Review Board is an administrative body that's been established to protect the rights and welfare of human research subjects, those recruited to participate in research activities at the institution where the IRB is of record. It's important to distinguish this from things such as animal studies that have their own institutional boards. One you might have heard of is the Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee, and that would pertain to animal studies. But in the case of the IRB, we are charged to protect patients primarily through the review and approval of new protocols for research that come through our institution. Our main focus is to protect the patients, not just their health, but also their rights and their privacy. And privacy is oftentimes one of the bigger considerations in these cases. A lot of research that's done doesn't involve anything that would be considered risky in a medical sense, but oftentimes we're working with issues that may be sensitive in regard to protecting the privacy of the data that are being used in the study. We have the authority to approve or disapprove protocols that come across our desks. And we also monitor the progress of the research protocols as they're being implemented. And sometimes we are forced to request modifications of those activities or various other regulatory activities that pertain specifically to human subjects research. One of our underappreciated objectives as an IRB is to represent the community that we live in. I think it's common misunderstanding when people hear that institutional review boards are mandated by the government and that they exist at all institutions. It's sometimes perceived that they're all the same. that's not true. IRBs are very local. That's the point. There may come a time sometime in the distant future where all research at all institutions will be approved by some centralized body in the government or otherwise. But at the present time, everything's being done on a very local level. So although we are supervised in our activities by the federal government, specifically by the Office for Human Research Protection, OHRP, we operate very much on a local scale.
0: You bring up an interesting point here. Why is that important that IRBs operate on a local level?
2: Different communities have different standards of care, different patient populations of interest, different IRBs at local institutions have different jobs and different focuses on different things. So it's important to understand your community, the type of patients in your community, the type of research in your community, in order to understand what the IRB will be reviewing in its daily work. But one of the things that makes that important is that we involve community members. We have a constituency of our IRB committees, which is very diverse, and that's done on purpose.
0: Really? When you say that the IRB committee members are diverse, can you give us some examples of what you're talking about?
2: We have requirement to include basic scientists, clinicians clinical researchers, non-scientists, non-affiliates. and Of course, we have regulatory personnel as well. So it's a very large group of people who all work together for the common purpose of approving and reviewing research protocols.
0: Those are some great points you make that the IRB is really operating on a local scale, that it includes a diverse variety of people who all provide their own perspective. Thanks for that great description. Another thing that would be helpful to review is just the components of the IRB. Can you outline them for us?
2: Yeah, building on the idea of a diverse body and the idea that the IRB is more than just a homogenous group of of people, it's important not just when considering the role of the IRB from an administrative perspective, but also when preparing your protocol for the IRB's review. You remember that many of the members on the IRB do not have a medical background. Many of them don't understand what we might consider to be very basic scientific terms. One very good rule of thumb whenever you're preparing an IRB submission is to make sure that you're phrasing and phrasing things in a way that would be easily digestible and understandable to a layperson. Perhaps one of the more common mistakes that people make is using overly scientific language when describing what they're going to be doing for subjects, how they're planning to analyze the data, and other aspects of the study. It's important to remember that some of the people reviewing your proposal will have no understanding of the medical concepts that you're discussing. And so you actually have to define words that you might think are otherwise very easy to understand. As part of that, we really have a requirement from our supervisor. Advisory bodies to include at least five members per IRB. Uh, One of them must be a scientist, meaning someone who conducts research. One of them must be a non-scientist, meaning someone who does not. And then a third requirement is we must have at least one non-affiliate. This person doesn't have to be a community member per se, but they can't be affiliated with the institution where the IRB is of record. For example, I work at Wayne State University and we can't have anyone who's affiliated with Wayne State University serve in that position as a non-affiliate. Many times these are community members and that's really the best use of that role. We may, for example, have a preacher or a lawyer or a seamstress or someone who truly has no medical background, but is able to represent the perspective of the subjects. Because of course, most of our subjects in research don't have any medical understanding either. In many ways, they're the most important member of the committee as the person who's the non-affiliate who doesn't understand these complicated concepts of medical care and science. When you write your proposal, you've got to keep that in mind, that at least one member of the team will know not have any understanding. And that flavors their interpretation of your message.
1: That's really great tangible advice for those of us writing IRBs to keep in mind that the target audience is not only physicians and to recognize that certain medical jargon might be tougher to interpret. And it's important to recognize the audience that you're writing to. To shift gears a bit, can you provide a brief description of what types of studies require IRB review and approval and those that might not?
2: Well, there are really two main considerations when you're trying to determine whether or not your study will require IRB review. The one is whether or not it is, in fact, research. This is probably where most people make their mistakes because, by definition, research should be used to draw conclusions related to some larger entity, larger than the population from which the the data is derived. For example, institutions frequently perform some types of quality improvement initiatives. might be something as simple as studying infection rates in the OR or looking at the accuracy of prescriptions that their doctors are providing to patients. And so th- these type of activities might be intended merely to improve quality of care at the institution where they are being performed. That type of quality improvement initiative is really not under the purview of the IRB. The IRB is concerned about protecting patients and data that will be used to draw general conclusions or contribute to generalizable knowledge. One litmus test that you might hear circulating is, well, if it's going to be published, it has to be IRB approved. That's reasonable to consider. It may not be inclusive enough. There is plenty of research that people do that does not ever get published, but it's still research. But I think it's a reasonable place to start. So if your intention going into the study is to uh, make generalized statements or generate generalized knowledge that will go on to create a manuscript or a poster or some form of presentation to others outside of your institution, that's probably research. And you should definitely seek advice from your IRB to determine whether or not you are exempt or not. Most people have a sense for certain types of studies being researched. I mean, device trials, drug trials, these are obviously research because they are involving systematic exposure of subjects to an intervention and then trying to understand the outcomes that result from those. But that can be complicated in other things, other studies. Beyond being just research, the second consideration is whether or not it involves human subjects research. The IRB really has proved, view over human subjects research and excludes animal studies, that's a different body. You have to look at the subject in question for your study and determine whether or not this is going to be what we call living human subjects, if you're interacting or intervening with living human subjects, or their identifiable private information. So those are the two ways that something can become or be determined to be human subjects research. If you're in question, I would always encourage anyone to solicit the opinion of your IRB staff
0: That totally makes sense. And I've always been taught that it's smart to err on the side of submitting an IRB application rather than not. Of the studies that the IRB does have to review, what are the kinds of approvals that they can give? And what happens if I submit a study as the wrong type?
2: We definitely see plenty of that. It's important to remember that we in the IRB are primarily focused on risk. We have a lot of ways of determining risk, and there are a lot of types of risks to consider. The way that we determine what type of approval can be provided for a protocol is very much dependent on the risk involved to subjects. One example of what might be considered a low-risk protocol would be a study looking retrospectively at how BMI relates to the risk of cardiac disease. Let's say you're a junior investigator and you want to do a study just focused on that subject, your plan is to go retrospectively through the charts of a thousand patients and to list out characteristics that those patients possess and then see if there can be any correlation between your outcome and your exposure. That type of retrospective work would definitely be considered expedited by IRB. And what expedited refers to is the fact that it doesn't require a full board approval. So a full board approval is really the gold standard highest level of difficulty to get through, and that's because it requires submission to the full board for the full board's review, and it requires a vote by the entire IRB committee. That's the high standard. So that is what I would call a full approval. Expedited would be things that are determined by IRB staff to not require that level of scrutiny, and that would be assessed at a pre-review. So after you submit your protocol, it would be confirmed by IRB staff that your particular study qualifies as an expedited protocol. Usually you can tell in advance, we actually have different forms for these different types of approval. And this is where you can get into some real troubles. Of the stumbling blocks that our investigators deal with, this is a big one. It's submitting it for the wrong type of approval. If there's ever a question, and I'm going to keep coming back to this point, it's always a good idea to go back to the IRB and ask their opinion on what they recommend rather than doing all of the work and then having to redo some of it. In general, I would say if it's a minor risk study, such as data collection. At my IRB, we consider a simple blood draw within a certain amount of blood to be a lower risk study because patients are oftentimes having blood drawn anyway. It doesn't add a great deal of risk to take an additional 10 or 20 mLs of blood from an adult human subject. Those can be expedited oftentimes. The studies that clearly cannot be expedited would be things that would be greater than minimal risk. So if you're administering a medication that has risk associated with it or if you are changing the standard of care, so if you're deviating from what would normally happen to that patient in the clinical setting, that's going to be more than minimal risk. This can be a little dicey too for investigators because what they think of as, minimal risk may not be what the IRB thinks of as minimal risk. So I think a good litmus test is if you're doing anything other than a chart review plus or minus a blood draw, that's going to be a full board protocol, most likely. If you're in doubt, it's never going to hurt to go to a full board review, except that it's going to take longer to get through because expedited go on to the desk of the reviewer who then signs off and says, this is fine. It doesn't need to go to the committee. Whereas my committee meets once a month. If the protocol comes in the day after our meeting, it has to wait nearly a month before it gets back on our desk. So that can be a significant delay in time. By the same token, if you submit it the wrong way and the reviewer reviews it and feels that it should have been a full board review, now you've got to go back and complete the full board review application, and that's going to slow you down as well. So understanding which type of approval you're seeking is very important to the process and getting that right the first time is very important. Finally, I think a last category would be exemption. Oftentimes people submit studies that really don't require IRB review. When that happens, we would send a letter back to the investigator saying, we've determined that you your study does not require review, we give you a concurrence of exemption, so you can conduct your research without the IRB's oversight, as defined by the protocol that was submitted. And we have no problem reviewing those protocols and um, giving that letter because a lot of IRBs are very willing and ready to provide a pre-review of your a proposal, your protocol, to prevent you from hitting those delays.
1: Another big area of confusion for investigators seems to be the consent process. Where do you commonly see people go wrong with the consent process, and do you have any pearls to prevent common pitfalls related to this?
2: I mentioned one of them already, which is the concept of putting things in layperson's terms. That's by far the most common mistake that people make. Risk is central to the discussion of how we approve or disapprove protocols. Patients cannot be expected to understand the risk if you don't put it in terms that they can understand. One of the errors that scientists make is we think everybody's a scientist. Everybody knows all these medical terms and science terms. Very simple terms can be very confusing to a person who's attempting to give consent for a study, especially our community members, but also even as scientists, we try to be sensitive to this. When we read through the consent, if we don't feel that a person with a sixth or eighth grade education would understand this language, then we're going to recommend changes to your consent form. It's also important to remember that not just your consent document, but also your actual protocol submission form should be in layperson's terms. And that seems a little harder for investigators to grasp because they understand that patients aren't medical experts, but there seems to be an expectation sometimes that the IRB are all medical experts. And because we review protocols all the time, we must understand all these medical terms. You have to be careful with that. And I recommend that the investigator, when preparing all of the documents for the IRB, is very careful to avoid using technical terms without providing a definition. It's sometimes just as simple as saying the word and then in parentheses saying what you mean by the word, translating the word into common layperson's terms. Once you've defined it, as with any document, you can go on and use the term a little more loosely and, and the understanding is that people can can interpret the, the words. But when you get really highly technical protocols, it can be super challenging to put everything in layperson's terms, but it needs to be done. And then a derivative of that is explaining common procedures. This is something else that is a big pitfall. People assume that all doctors understand what a chest tube means. You would think they would. Everyone's gone through medical school uh, if you're a doctor, but then also recall that members of the IRB, they can be pharmacists. They can be non-physicians. Don't assume that they have the same medical training that you do, because they probably don't. Describe procedures that you're going to do in maybe more detail than you think you need. Another common mistake is really not following the directions. Most people who do clinical research, are maybe a little type A, maybe a little hyper-focused on protocol. And that can be good in this case, because every question needs to be answered. We generally can live with one or two unanswered questions if we know what the investigator would have wanted to put in that spot. But if there's any question about how they would have responded to the question, we sometimes have to table just for that. An example might be if there's a question about what have you done to minimize risk to potentially pregnant patients? If you just skip that question, because it didn't seem relevant to your study, instead of answering not applicable, it then causes the reviewer to have to go back and look at your protocol and see, well, did they exclude pregnant patients? And, or maybe you didn't specify that anywhere explicitly in your exclusion criteria. So now they're raising questions to the committee about, well, I don't know if I understand the risks to pregnant patients, and are they really doing pregnancy tests? And it becomes very convoluted. Simple yes, no clicking boxes can really lead to a lot of uh, unnecessary confusion about your protocol. So always keep in mind to complete all of the forms that you're provided by your institution. Other things that people often mess up are providing contact information. Your consent form, for example, should always have who to call in case of an injury. Oftentimes, there's opportunities for investigators to identify victims of crime. For example, minors who become pregnant. If you find that a minor is pregnant, what are you going to do with that information that should be part of the consent? And then do patients have the right to withdraw from your study, or can you remove them from the study? These are questions that need to be in the consent form. And if they're not there, they can lead to an immediate tabling. As a third point, Style and grammar count. Be clear, be concise, spell well, have someone else look at your protocol to make sure that it's understandable. It'd be better if it was somebody who is not a doctor, nurse, or clinician because that person would definitely ask you if they didn't understand a term.
0: Speaking of pregnant patients and other vulnerable populations, consent seems to be a really nuanced subject that is very much affected by the type of subject that you're studying. What do you do when you are thinking about including vulnerable populations? Does it matter how you justify things if you aren't including them?
2: that's a common mistake actually is assuming for example with pregnant patients that you would not include them in your study and believe it or not the IRB is oftentimes more concerned about why you want to exclude pregnant patients than why you would want to include them. What we're realizing more and more is that traditional research has excluded pregnant women and that's a reasonable concern about risk to the fetus but at the same time that limits our understanding of how different interventions impact pregnant people so that's very much a risk in its own right are more sensitive now than I think investigators were in the past to the need to try to include pregnant women when it's not a perceivable risk to the fetus. In general, I think it's always a good idea to consider when you're designing your protocol and you're determining who your subjects are, what type of subjects you really, really need and want. Are there legitimate reasons to exclude or include what we call vulnerable populations, pregnancy being one of them? And if you really feel in your heart or you know you have facts to support the idea that one or more of these groups needs to be included or excluded, you have to justify that and explain that to the IRB. For example, children are another vulnerable group. Are you including children in your study? If so, why? Why do you need to include children? If not, why not? Perhaps it's just some institutions, they don't see a lot of children. Also, people with cognitive impairments, that's an important consideration with consent. I would be very careful, including people with cognitive impairment in studies because it raises questions of whether they can actually provide consent for inclusion. And now you're getting into legally authorized representatives providing consent, which is very complicated, potentially. Prisoners is another common vulnerable population that is generally excluded from most ED populations in most studies. And then non-English speakers is another important consideration. The the decision to include non-English speakers in your study will substantially change the way that you do your consent. You have to have whatever your non-English language is. If it's Spanish, Arabic, you need to now have a a different consent form for that individual. And you need to have a person fluent in that language to obtain that consent. It gets a lot more complicated. And I think most investigators just exclude non-English speakers right off the bat. That may be appropriate in most cases. IRBs are sensitive to the additional requirements to protect and include or exclude vulnerable subjects. So we really look very closely at that.
1: Another barrier I've had when filling out IRBs in the past is that some questions or components of the IRB can get confusing and can become tempting to just skip parts of it that I'm not sure how to answer. How would you recommend approaching these situations?
2: Well, first of all, never, never leave a question blank. If you are not sure about the answer to something you should ask, it is of crucial importance to address all of the requisite questions and elements of the IRB approval process. You have to complete the entire form. Read the forms, don't skip or leave anything out, and call if you have questions. Your IRB staff are always going to be willing to help you with those questions. I think it's also important to remember to get signatures on your forms. A lot of times we receive submissions for protocols that don't have the proper signatures. And one of the more important signatures, in addition to the principal investigator signature, is the chairperson or person who is determined to be responsible for the scientific merit of that study. That is an absolutely essential signature. You will not even be considered without that signature because that really proves that your peers, your supervisors, feel that your protocol has enough scientific merit to be considered by the IRB. And it's a very big check and balance type of thing for us because we're really not focusing on the scientific review. We're focusing on the ethical more than the scientific merits of the study. We do consider scientific merit and we do some Sometimes eliminate protocols, disapprove them, or recommend changes based on the scientific, let's just say, demerits of the study. But we really rely heavily on your supervisor, your chair usually, to have reviewed the protocol and to feel as a fellow specialist in your area of, of research that this protocol has merit scientifically.
0: Well, James, Nate and I want to sincerely thank you for all of the knowledge and wisdom you've shared with us today on Common IRB Pitfalls and Pearls. I think it's really important to review the key take-home points from the podcast today to help our listeners walk away with something tangible. Number one, the IRB is composed of a diverse group of scientists and non-scientists who are acting mostly on a local level. Number two, It's critical to use language that a layperson can understand for all IRB documents. Number three, follow instructions. If something isn't clear, clarify with the IRB rather than ignore portions of the application or rather than making mistakes that can cause delays. Number four, Protocols involving more than minimal risk will likely require a full board review. Number five, make sure to justify the inclusion or exclusion of vulnerable populations, including women, children, prisoners, patients with cognitive impairment, and non-English speakers. James, is there anything else you want to hammer home for the listeners today?
2: Be careful that you don't ask for more than you need, and be careful that you explain why you need what you do. That I think would be the most important part of really avoiding unnecessary tables and delays.
0: That's a wrap for today. Thank you for listening to the SAM Research Learning Series podcast. Subscribe to our Academic Life and Emergency Medicine podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes to catch the next episode.
1: See you next time.